Welcome to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Cast. Well, this past week, uh, Karina and I were watching the, the holiday Christmas cult classic, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Who's seen that movie? I feel like I'm the only one who hadn't like seen it. Uh, I think I've seen it at some point, but we watch it all in one setting. And if you remember the movie... So the holidays are approaching, and how does it start out? They're going out to find the perfect tree. So uh, Chevy Chase uh, played by, or no, Clark Griswold played by Chevy Chase, and his wife Ellen played by Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, they're in, in search of the cr- perfect Christmas tree, so they go out with their, their wife and the kids to uh, go out for that perfect tree. And Clark is trying to do everything he can to make sure they have the perfect uh, Christmas from having the perfect tree to having the, the perfect house to having all the family over. And, you know, pretty quickly in the movie, things go awry. His kids are getting uh, angry and kind of frustrated about being in each other's space. And then, you know, the, the grandparents are bickering, bickering with each other. And just when you think things couldn't get worse, Cousin Eddie, if you remember, Cousin Eddie shows up with uh, his kids in that broken down RV, unplanned. And, you know, through it all, though, Clark is undeterred in his, in, in, in his attempt to have the perfect Christmas, no matter the disasters that come his way. You know, the cat being electrocuted, the dog tearing up the house, the turkey being overcooked. Through it all, Clark is determined to show a good face. And what's enabling Clark to keep it all together is the hope and belief that his late but expected Christmas bonus will soon arrive to cover all the expenses of Christmas and to pay for his soon-to-be-announced big surprise gift. That of the, the backyard pool, right? So Christmas Eve, a messenger arrives and says, Hey, I'm sorry, I was, I was late. I forgot this was in my car or whatever. And he hands um, Clark the envelope. But rather than having an envelope in it, or envelope, rather than having the bonus check in it, when Clark opens it up, he realizes it's not a bonus check, but rather a certificate for a jelly of a month club. So if you remember, at this point, Clark loses it, and he goes on this epic rant, which I feel like I had to quote. So uh, it's, it's a PG version. Uh, hey, if you, any of you are looking for any last-minute gifts ideas for me, I have one. I'd like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought over from his happy holiday slumber over on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. I want him right here with a big ribbon on his head, and I want him looking straight in the eye. I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, hopeless, heartless, fat, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spy-lipped, worm-headed, sack of monkey he is. Hallelujah! If you notice, I edited uh, a few points out of there. So Cousin Eddie, uh, inspired, takes Clark seriously and drives off in a, in a hurry to Melody Lane. And Clark, in his delirium, marches outside with a chainsaw to, to replace the tree that I think his father-in-law had burned down with his, with his cigar. So, he, you know, Clark marches out with a chainsaw, cuts down a pine tree in the, in the, in the front yard, pulls it into, um, into his house. And, and afterwards, you know, Clark goes into the bathroom and his wife, Ellen, confronts him and says, hey, is everything okay? Um, you know, was that really necessary? And, you know, after that, there's yet another crazy calamity. If you remember, the squirrel uh, goes running through the house and tears it up. And at that point, you know, the family's kind of like, we're done. We're done. And they're all getting ready to march out of the house. But Clark, 
uh, says, no, I'm not going to let them go. So he says, again, I feel like I had to quote this, where do you think you're going? Nobody is leaving. Nobody's walking out on this old-fashioned, fun family Christmas. No, no, we're all in this together. This is a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're going to press on. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap danced with Danny Kay, and when Santa squeezes his fat white bleep down the chimney tonight, he's going to find the jolliest bunch of bleep holes this side of the nuthouse. Having ended his rant, Clark marches off to the kitchen to get a drink of water. And if you remember, uh, Clark is getting, you know, from the, I don't, we don't use these anymore, those, the water machines. He's getting his cup of water, and his father walks in and says, Hey, Clark, you doing okay? And he, he lovingly asks Clark to re-examine his priorities, reminding him that despite the disaster of the evening, what his family is going to remember is how much he loves them, despite the disaster, and it's okay that Clark messed up. And it's in this moment, I think we see what was motivating Clark all along. The desire to have the perfect Christmas that he never got as a kid. He says, all our holidays, Dad, were such a mess. How'd you get through it? And if you remember, Dad says, had a lot of help from Jack Daniels. You know, from wanting to get the perfect tree to having, you know, all the family gather to trying to give this perfect gift, Clark was trying to do everything he could to create something he apparently never experienced as a kid, the perfect Christmas. I think this is something on some level we can all relate to. My memory as a kid of Christmas was always spending Christmas at my uncle's house in Bailey, Colorado. So in Bailey, Colorado, uh, if you've ever been there, it's up 285. My whole family would gather with my, my uncle, my aunt, my two cousins, uh, my family of six, my grandparents, and then my great uncle, Bill. And in this modestly sized house, we'd spend Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, the day after Christmas together. And while I'm sure that I'm kind of, you know, overly uh, romanticizing what it actually was like, in some ways, I think even today as a parent, I kind of compare my Christmases today to those Christmases I experienced, you know, 20 years ago, and I kind of wish that I could somehow bring that Christmas into the present day. And part of the reason for that is because that Christmas, or those Christmases, that big extended family was a family of 13, 14 people, so that big extended family has been whittled down to this point of, of seven. Um, my uncle died uh, suddenly on Thanksgiving about 15 years ago. Uh, shortly after that, my aunt and my cousins became estranged from the family. My grandparents died a few years ago. My sister and then her husband moved out of state. And then another sister has become... Uh, this estranged, I guess, from the family. So uh, for me, I think in some ways, deep down, I, I struggle to engage because I feel like I'm, I'm wishing for what was and I'm mourning what was. And, and I think we can, probably, we can probably all relate to that feeling to some extent. And that feeling kind of leads us to act in one of two ways. We can be like, we can be like Clark and try to, try to recreate the perfect Christmas 
Or, you know, maybe like me at times, we can have this reticence to go all in on giving, you know, giving oneself permission to really engage in the joy of the season because we're struggling to, uh, to retain the hope and belief that no matter the differences of the past, this Christmas can be uh, just, as, just as much, if not more, meaning so um, from those past Christmases. And thinking about that, struggling with that hope, that reticence, it, when I read uh, the certain text from the Bible in the book of Isaiah, it kind of like makes me even all the more kind of seem far off and, and uh, unreasonable. Uh, so this is the season of Advent, as we talked about. And uh, in this church world, we talk about Advent and, and the birth of Jesus coming. And Advent is both a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at uh, Jesus' birth. And also, we think about the far future of Jesus coming again in the future. So in the season of Advent, we mark the time, as kind of we did today, by Advent candles, by, by calendars, and then, like as Paul mentioned, by doing devotionals with our family. And at its core, Advent is a season of waiting. This Advent, we've been, we've been trying to think about things differently a little bit. Namely, what can't wait? We've been trying to think about the things that can't wait in our lives. And, you know, rather than focusing on what can't wait, or what can wait, I want us to think about the things that can't wait in our lives. And this week, I want you to know that peace in your life, peace in your family, cannot wait. So again, I, I want to... Last week, we were talking about the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And as I mentioned last week, Isaiah's homeland, uh, when he was writing this book, had been invaded by a foreign empire. And thousands of people were deported, and their cities were destroyed. But despite the disaster, the calamity, you know, the destruction, Isaiah was still hopeful. He still had the hope and belief that God had a plan for them. God had a future for them. So I want to read this morning, um, we'll have it on the screen here, but I'm going to read from Isaiah 11, uh, verses 6 through 9. These are some of the words that Isaiah wrote to his people uh, way back when that I find kind of, thinking about the circumstance, kind of overwhelmingly, wow. So he says, the wolf shall live with a lamb. Again, Isaiah's painting a future. He, he says, the wolf shall live with a lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover as the waters cover the sea. So again, you know, these words were written to a nation, to a people that had just been invaded and conquered. Likely thousands of men killed in battle, you know, hundreds of women and children assaulted, and, and myriads more deported out of the country. These words of hope, of peace, of tranquility, tranquility must have been shocking to hear, and surely the people, when they read this or heard this, must have been wondering, how in the world can we make this happen? So fast forward, if you will, with me, several hundred years in the future, and on the scene comes this guy named John the Baptist. And if you remember the character John the Baptist, he was kind of this outlandish 
uh, woodsman, I don't know how to describe him, wilderness woodsman type guy who lived off the land eating locusts and wild honey, it says, and then what does he have this kind of like really uh, rugged clothing appeal? And he's kind of like this, um, you know, kind of like this wandering prophet who goes around like telling the people to change because of the, you know, the, this need to change because of what's coming. I was kind of thinking about like what would be like a, a modern day parallel and um, I was kind of thinking like Greta Thunberg, if I'm saying her name right, kind of someone who's like uh, seems uh, outside of mainstream in some capacity, does things differently. I remember, I remember like when she came to America to talk about climate change, she took like a sailboat home, which was like, that must have been a long trip. You know, someone who's, who's a, a prophet in, in a way, talking about a need to change, a need to repent and do things differently uh, outside of the mainstream perspective in a way. So again, John the Baptist was this kind of like, he was kind of this character who was different. And what's interesting about John the Baptist, he was also like uh, Isaiah, speaking to a people who were also conquered and, and defeated by a foreign empire. This, this, in this case, the Roman Empire. So uh, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene. It says, in those days, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But the one whom the prophet Isaiah, or this is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So as I read this at least, John, is, John seems to be proclaiming himself as in the spirit, continuing in the spirit of Isaiah, calling himself a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. But what John is calling for isn't a spirit of hopefulness. It's not about optimism or hopefulness. Rather, he's calling for repentance. He asks the people to take responsibility for their own actions and then to change. What John knows is that it's only through honest confession can we seek reconciliation and become Vessels of God's peace. If I can say this, but I think we see this in the character of Clark Griswold. So remember again in the movie, when Eddie brings back Clark's boss to the house, and, and understandably enraged, uh, Clark's boss, Frank, fires him on the spot, blaming him for the whole debacle. But Eddie counters that, the, the, you know, you shouldn't blame Clark. This, well, this whole thing was my idea, he says. And Clark rebuts Eddie and says, you know, no, this was my fault. And what's interesting is while Clark had changed his behavior, he still had to deal with the consequences of his actions. I did it, Clark confesses. Clark essentially says, my actions... My attitude, I guess, my attitude led to Clark's actions. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it's after this confession that true reconciliation comes. The boss relents and promises to restore the Christmas bonuses. And I think this is the same thing that John the Baptist was trying to point out and something we should take note of. Again, only, only through honest confession can Reconciliation and peace come. Can we become vessels of God's peace through honest confession? 
can reconciliation come? In other words, true peace, it starts with you, and it starts with me. You're the only one that can change you. I'm the only one that can change me. And when you change you, when I change me, we start, things around us start to change. But despite this, despite this truth, I believe, we try to go around it, we go, go about it the other way. We change, we try to change, we don't change. Uh, anyone who's been married or in a relationship for a long length of time knows how hard it is to actually change someone. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we try to change our spouse, we try to change our children, we try to change our family. It doesn't work, right? It does not work. The problem is we cannot change someone else. And really, this, this principle beyond, goes beyond just ourselves and our families. You know, this is the time of the year we talk about, you know, peace for the world, about the ending of violence, ending of destruction, you know, peace for all people, and inspiring the kind of peace that Isaiah uh, spoke of and wrote about here in Isaiah. But the problem when we talk about peace even today is we often seek to achieve peace by changing the other. I was thinking about this even, even nationally in our politics. We seek to change peace in other parts of the world by changing other people, other nations, without acknowledging our own uh, actions as a nation, how our own actions contribute to violence, how our own history as a nation has contributed to violence. Peace starts with you. It starts with me, whether in our family, in our community, or in, or in our nation. And at peace only comes by you and by me owning up to our own stuff, owning up to our own actions, and seeking to change ourselves. Now, I do want to say this. Peace is not pretending like everything is fine. It's not. It's not about patting one another on the back and pretending like, you know, putting a blind eye to the wrong. Again, remember in the movie, Clark is constantly sweeping everything under the rug, pretending everything is fine. You know, uh, again, think about the, um, they're sitting at dinner, right? Clark opens up the turkey and reveals just a dried up carcass. And he's like, oh, it's fine. You know, his, he aunts, what, Aunt Bethany, is that right? He asks Aunt Beth Bethany to say the grace and she recites the Pledge of Allegiance and he says, Amen. And then, of course, like, while they're having dinner, the cat is electrocuted in the next room, and he walks in. You know, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. Pretending everything is fine when everything is definitely not fine is not true peace. But sometimes achieving real peace will come at a real cost. Peace might require you confessing or acknowledging that you've been walked over, diminished, or mistreated, in the name of keeping the peace. Peace might cost us something. And further, to achieve real peace uh, for yourself, you might have to stop pretending like everything is fine. You might need to press pause on a relationship. You might need to stop participating in a function. You might need to start doing things differently. And while things might get worse in the short term, in the end, it's in taking the hard road that peace will actually come. Again, <laughs> I'm citing uh, National Lampoon here like it's the gospel. Again, in the movie, think back again when, they're, when the Clark's boss is dragged in front of the family 
after Clark having told his boss that denying the Christmas bonus just plain sucks, Clark's boss finally relents. Frank tells his wife, who, who had come down the scene at that point, he said, I did something I shouldn't have, and these people called me on it. And again, please don't take this as an excuse to kidnap your boss or your family member. Rather, please recognize that sometimes achieving peace means confessing your own actions or mistakes. And also, understand that sometimes finding peace for you and your family means confessing uh, how the actions of others have hurt or diminished you. And as, as impossible as this sounds, as unlikely as such a resolution might seem, the words spoken by Isaiah encourage us to believe that nothing is ever dead, broken, or lost. So in the same chapter that we just read from, when Isaiah talks about, you know, the, the lion and the lamb uh, lying down together, the beginning of this chapter, uh, Isaiah writes, A root shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow from its roots. I said a shoot, a shoot shall come out. So think about this. Think, like, think about in terms of like a mighty oak tree. So Jesse was... Uh, in biblical times, he was the father of the great uh, and, and famous King David. King David was the beginning of this great uh, family dynasty of rulers of the nation. Yet, obviously, since the nation had been conquered, that great family tree had been cut down, it had been broken into pieces, and only a stump remained. In other words, the family legacy of the tree of Jesse was dead. Or was it? As Isaiah notes, out of that stump, what was seen as dead and lost, something was sprouting, something was taking root, a new life, a seedling of hope was coming forth. This is our hope, too. No matter how broken, how dysfunctional, how dead things in our family might seem, new life can still come forth. By coming to terms with our own faults, by speaking our own truth, by changing yourself, real change, real peace can come to your family. Again, I want to be clear that these results don't come easily. They're, they may require some real soul-searching, some real change, some real effort on our part. We might have to look at parts of ourselves that we never really wanted to look at again. They may necessitate us some doing, doing some things that seem impossibly difficult from afar. They may require us to do some things we never imagined ourselves doing before. But in the end, what would we rather have? What would you rather have? Would you rather be Clark Griswold gnawing on a dried-out piece of turkey while the dog is puking under the table beneath you from the family trash in the kitchen he got into, pretending like everything is fine? Would you rather be that other scene that comes in the movie when they're sitting together around the fireplace arm in arm, enjoying each other's company? Which would you rather have? The latter 
which I think fits with this idyllic vision of Isaiah, is something I believe we all desire deep down for ourselves, perhaps find or think impossible to achieve. But do not despair. Hope is not lost. No matter how dysfunctional, how dead, how broken our family might seem, new life can still come forth. That's the hope of Isaiah. By coming to terms with your own faults, by speaking your own truth, by seeking to change yourself, real change can come to you and can come to your family. Real peace. This season of Advent, this coming Christmas, peace in your family cannot wait. But for real peace to come to your family, it has to start with you. Let's pray. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N dot O-R-G. See you next week.